Hi, my name's Aymara Freeman, and today's guest on Resilient and Real is Dr. Timothy E. Haugen, our Deputy Director over Outpatient Clinics and Youth Services. Hi, Dr. Haugen. Hi, Amara. Dr. Haugen, you guys have the best acronym. Which one? For your division. O-C-A-Y. S. Which spells... Well, I'm not quite sure on the pronunciation because it's relatively new. So we're either we are the OKs <laughs> or we're the Akas. And we are going to identify different birds for each group within my division. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a newly formed division. It hasn't been around for longer than four months. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I love the OKs. It's much better than wet, for sure. Oh. <laughs> I think wet's clever. What I really think is clever about wet and and children stole this idea is that every single room in the building is a is named water. Yes. Yeah. Is that why they did that? So when you go to children's, we took the same we took the same thing and basically threw out our favorite foreign words for children. Oh. And so every like every that. room at the children's building is children. It's just, you know, bambino type of thing. Yes. Yeah. Dr. Haugen, can you share with our listeners what you do here? I'm a child psychologist who has really, I've been with the department for 27 plus years and I've worked my way through a variety of assignments and positions. And now for the last several years, I am the deputy director who oversees a smorgasbord of programs. And, And so you were joking about the OKs or the OKAs, and we're not quite sure how to pronounce that. But basically, it's it's a, a mixture of our children's programs, which is quite vast, our TAY programs for transitional-aged youth, so the, the middle age there where they transition from childhood to adulthood beyond adolescence, and then our community clinics, which really serve a full range children uh, Tay, adult, and older adult uh, throughout the county, where our, the bulk of our outpatient mental health services that are clinic-based are provided. So I oversee those programs, contracts, as well as internal operations. And so for the purposes of our podcast today, we'll be focusing uh, primarily on the children's services that your division provides. Now that, I think I've seen ranges and it starts from ages zero to roughly 21. Is that correct? One of the things that's interesting is that our children's programs focus on zero to 18. And yet, because of the way the federal government structured Medicaid, we're in a position to serve people who go past their 18th birthday. And so we're capable of serving folks in the children's programs up to the age of 21. That's not our primary target. The adults are not our primary target. So how do you provide services for someone who is three months of age? You know, people have a tough time with that. I actually was contacted. I thought this was quite funny. Uh, This is a long time ago, but I was contacted by our research and evaluation unit who was explaining to me that we had several contract agencies that were misentering dates of birth because they couldn't comprehend that a child as young as one or two would need mental health services. Mm-hmm. And in, in reality, infant mental health is growing quite a bit because we're recognizing the need more and more. 
The way I typically explain it is if I were to tell you about a, a young, let's say a, a young girl who only has friends that her parents picks for her and is only allowed to see her friends under supervision and is not allowed to ever leave the home and go with any of her friends to any events or anything. The way I'm saying that sounds negative, but if I was talking to you about a six-year-old, you would think, oh, well, this now makes sense, right? Six-year-olds are actually not allowed to make their own friends without parent supervision. They don't go out and go do things with their friends without parent supervision. And so if you think about that sort of maturation element of what are we expecting, right? And so we are expecting a 14, 15-year-old to make friends outside of the family and develop strong, intimate relationships. We are not expecting that same thing from a six-year-old. So if a six-year-old is not doing that, we think this is okay. If a 14-year-old is not doing that, we think we need to do something to help them develop that and, and, and grow. The same thing is true for the infants, because when you think about an infant, <clears throat> for example, um, one of my, now this is going way back, but one of my favorite infant researchers, research that was done was they wired a binky, you know, uh, something that's what we call it in my family, a binky, the thing. Yeah, pacifier. A pacifier, thank you. That's the more appropriate professional term. They wired a pacifier to a slide projector, and the infant was able to control the image that was being shown by sucking on the pacifier, which I think is just brilliant. By doing that, you could gauge and measure the types of pictures that infants prefer to look at. Without a doubt, the predominant thing is a face, right? So at a very young age, they want to look at faces, they identify, they make eye contact, all of that. Mm -hmm. And so if you are working with a two-month-old who is not in an age-appropriate way making a facial connection, they may need help. And that lack of ability or lack of drive to make that connection could be due to really a, um, a neurological disorder, mm -hmm. for example, autism, or it could be the outcome of neglect, right? Which is tragic to think about, but we mm -hmm. do have very young children being neglected. And so I think if you think of that as sort of an example of what is, what is the emotional relational expectations we have for a one-year-old, for a two-year-old, for a three-year-old, you really can then flip that switch and say, and if they're not there, then what? Right? Because if they're not there, then there's something that's not working well and we should try to help. So would that be attributed to mental illness though? So when I think of mental illness, I think of like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. That's mm -hmm. not something you would see in an infant, correct? No, you're absolutely right. You wouldn't be thinking of a serious and persistent mental illness for a one-year-old or a two-year-old or a three-year-old. And, and one of the things that I think is difficult is in, in some instances, when we talk about the mental illness, we talk about exactly those things that you're talking about, right? That that is something that it's a neurological disorder that we can help with. In other instances, though, um, mental illness is caused by some type of trauma. Hmm. And so if you think of um, a, a let's just stick with the story of an infant being neglected and therefore not engaging, having given up engaging with the caregivers, then 
you can conceptualize that as a trauma illness and needing to help them overcome that trauma. So speaking of trauma, I've heard this depending on like depends on who I ask, but what is your position on working with children and like pulling out that trauma, meaning talking about it? I've talked to some therapists that say, oh, it's better just to leave it alone and um, don't bring it up because it'll just just trigger things and maybe they'll maybe they forgot about it. That's what was explained to me. Or I've had some that say you need to talk about it because they need to work it through and get it resolved. What's best practice? I think it's it's going to be something that's individualized to the child, individualized to the person. Talking about someone or talking with someone about the trauma they've experienced can be traumatizing for that person. And that's never the goal. And yet some people have to talk about the trauma in order to no longer have that trauma impact them. Mm -hmm. And so there's a need to develop what's oftentimes referred to as a trauma narrative. You know, for children in particular, it's important that they can be able to tell their story. And if you're, you know, let's go to the extreme, and I know you didn't mean this, but if we went to the extreme and you forbade someone from talking about the trauma, then that would be problematic and harmful to the person. In, in the same way, if you made someone talk about the trauma who mm-hmm. did not need to, then that too would be problematic. But for particularly for young children, oftentimes they express their trauma not by talking about it mm-hmm. or bringing it up, but by how they behave and how they emotionally respond. And so at that point, you need to navigate that very carefully. So Dr. Haugen, I know that a lot of everyone in the world has been impacted by COVID, but definitely in the media, we always hear these stories of how difficult it's been for our kids and those that go to school and their inability to do that. Can you talk a little bit about how COVID has been impacting the kids that you come in contact with? Well, I think the isolation, right? So, I mean, again, it gets back to you you started this by talking to me about infants getting services. And I think it's helpful to sort of think about that. So how is an infant impacted by this? Well, it depends if someone gets sick, but for the most part, you know, they were already isolating, right? Mm -hmm. So it depends on which age and the impact of being sort of forced into isolation the lack of interactions, mm-hmm. right? The video conferencing is a real boon and, mm-hmm. and very helpful. It, however, is not the same thing. It's not the jovial stuff, right? And so the closeness, how we communicate is different. And so we've, we've taken that away from them in, in the pandemic because they're not allowed to have that. And it'll be, I think it'll be a process, a learning curve for most kids when the pandemic really subsides and we're no longer in that position. Yeah. And even for me, like I have one child that's just happy go lucky and really resilient. And even this just brought him to tears. I I just specifically remember him coming into my room and just bawling his eyes out. And he's not a little kid. I mean, he's, he's grown and it was just too much. It was, it's a lot, which I understand. But other than saying, you know, we'll get through it together, you know, I'm here, I'm listening to you. Really, I can't fix it, right? None of us can fix it. What else can we do to, to help our children in those situations? And when 
do you think it's appropriate for a parent to reach out and get professional help? The basic stuff is the good stuff, right? Facilitate the contacts that you can facilitate. Make sure there's activities that are intellectually and creatively engaging available in the home. Make sure you spend time outside. Mm -hmm. Engage in those activities as much as you can. Foster as much contact as you can with friends, with family, with loved ones. You know, one of the things that is interesting, and this comes out of the 40 assets research, where, you know, a key, a key indicator of, a, of a, someone developing resiliency is if they grow up having some adult outside of their immediate family value them and engage mm-hmm. with them. And so, you know, who is that in, in the kid's life is important to identify. And it doesn't have to be one person. So having an aunt, having an uncle, the concept of fictive kin, it's an unusual word, but basically it means it's like a fictional relationship, mm-hmm. not unreal, but not biologically based. Mm-hmm. And so I'm... I mean, everyone grows up with an uncle or an auntie or a tio or a tia mm-hmm. who isn't actually biologically related to them, right? Not everyone, right? But that's ideal. Have some adult that really cares. And so my thought would be if you have a young child and you're going through the pandemic, then where is that adult that cares about this kid? And how do you make that happen even more? And then seeking help, it's always a tough call. And so if if... The child is withdrawing uh, to the point that you feel like it's too much, right? Some withdrawal is going to be normal at this point. But if it feels like too much to you, if they're isolating too much from people even within the family, and then there's the obvious stuff, right? So if you get a lot of crying jags, anxious moments that are bordering on a panic attack, mm-hmm. Now, there's things that you can do well before you go and seek out a professional therapist. So there are really good mindfulness activities for kids that have to do that are very age appropriate. So it's not age appropriate for everyone, I'm told, but I think it is. There's a Sesame Street video with Elmo and Common. Have you seen this? Yes. Right. Belly breathe, it's really good. So um, it's a fun fun way of exploring that. So yeah, that would be my suggestion. If those things don't feel like that's enough, then seek help. And Dr. Haugen, when you, when you do seek help, when would you know if medication is also appropriate? I don't really know that you're going to know that medication is appropriate unless you're engaged in a dialogue with the people who are helping you. And so... I mean, there could be obvious situations, so I don't want to rule those out. But I've never met a parent who wanted to start their child on medicine. And so it's, it's, it's something where the idea that you would say to a parent, oh, look for these three key indicators and go get right. them on meds. That doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, really, it's a look for this stuff and then ask for help. If you're thinking medication would be appropriate, then the help would come from a psychiatrist. Go and talk to your pediatrician about this. Go and talk to a psychiatrist about this. I guess as from from a mother's perspective, it's trying to fix the problem or alleviate the pain as soon as possible. And especially for me, I always try to 
be ahead of the game. So I think that was the mindset with that. Well, you know, am I wasting my time going through, you know, six months of therapy if this is something like clinical depression that can only be treated with, you know, an antidepressant? I guess that's my thought. Clinical depression is able to be treated in more ways than just an antidepressant. And so it's really the question of where do you want to jump? There are people who skip therapy entirely and just take the antidepressant and because that's what the primary care physician suggested. Oh, that's true. I've seen that before too. Yeah. Right. And so it's a question of, okay, which way is the best direction? Because when they start that antidepressant, there's not a guarantee that that will be sufficient. Right. And Dr. Haugen, in closing, is there anything else that you'd like to add about your division and or the services that you're your division provides, and also what our listeners, specifically the parents, can do to support their kids? I think my division is is pretty broad. So if there's a need for high-level services for adults, today or youth, it'll, it'll be in there. In terms of supporting children, I think the there's the obvious stuff in terms of, you know, listening, acting, Actively being engaged, recognize that there's a tension between getting done what you want and actually managing the or helping your child manage their emotions. And sometimes you have to err on the side of helping them with the emotions rather than getting the stuff done. And lastly, I'd say, you know, schools are really struggling. And be patient with the school while at the same time make clear what your expectations are for your kids. Dr. Halgan, Deputy Director over outpatient clinics, and youth services. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This month, celebrate our Black History event, which will be the following Monday. It's going to be a virtual meeting at 2 p.m. where we celebrate Black History Month in our annual way here at Department of Behavioral Health. We are going to be highlighting a group that were able to make the second week of February African-American Mental Health Awareness Week from the state level where they acknowledged it. And that group contains some of our members who are currently with us and talk about how they were able to advocate for that week to be recognized. And then we're going to ask them, what do you think that the next generation should be focused on to make sure that mental health stays a priority issue within the Black community? And then this third part of the meeting, we'll be talking about how behavioral health looks from a generation perspective. What did the baby boomers have to deal with when it came to mental health, from substance abuse to all of the things that go along with how we look at ourselves, and then what a Generation X and millennials. So it's going to be an exciting time. We'll have a panel for that, and we hope everyone can come, and uh, you can contact Jonathan Buffon if you need some additional information. Being resilient and real also means practicing self-care, whether that means going on a hike, reading a book, or putting down our phones. So each episode will feature a DBH employee and share how they practice self-care in a segment we call Self-Care Corner. My name is Sandra Savage. I work for a DBH as a peer and family advocate, too. The first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I give gratitude for, for Almighty. Gratitude for waking up and just being thankful for my existence and being uh, surrounded by 
you know, just the beauty of the world. That's where my uh, positive thinking comes from, because I try to say positive, but that's where it comes from staying positive on all the positives and the beauties of this world. And also I pray. And also my self-care is also uplifting other people. I always felt like when I was younger that uh, uplifting other people that always made me feel better when I was going through any um, challenges. Other things I do for self-care are exercising, walking, hiking, and biking. And I love nature because I'm originally from Tennessee. So I love nature and photography. I've been doing photography for a long time as well. So when I travel to uh, different locations to take pictures, I always call it my, my peace break because there's so much serenity there. We all need a peace break. Also, I'm a creative person, so I also practice safe care uh, through my painting and writing poetry. I actually have a poetry blog and a photography, photography blog where I display my uh, poetry work and uh, post encouraging comments. I would like to share this short poem that I wrote on self-care. Self-care is about self-love, your peace every day. Take your time. Enjoy life moments in every way. Your mental and your physical health is so important to longevity, being productive, and wellness. So take time to be good to yourself and practice self-care. We have to take care of ourselves. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Resilient and Real. If you'd like to share your story of resiliency, please send us an email at dbh-publicrelations at dbh.sbcounty.gov. And don't forget to follow us on social media to stay updated on all things DBH. Until next time, live life resilient and real. 